Or Robin Lopez, that's the one that like <laughs> posted a picture that he drew of Aubrey Plaza. <laughs> Probably I have no Robin. Idea who you're talking about? Robin's the more online are, one. Robin's the poster. Yeah, these are basketball players. Andy. Okay. Um, yeah, one of them. This is a thing I remember. Of just he posted a picture and it was like at Evil Hag, I drew you, and it's like an anime Aubrey Plaza. Was it her in something or just like? No, I think it was just like a portrait. <laughs> Uh, I could be wrong, but uh, I definitely, I mean, it's just one of those weird things of, like, NBA players that post. I mean, like, Durant, obviously. The GOAT. It's like, when's Arbitrage 2 coming out? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, Durant's obviously the best at posting. <laughs> Erica, Erica Badu, thicker than a kindergarten pencil, I think, is still my favorite. <laughs> just, like, fully What do you like know. about that, Cullen? It's just, I mean, it's evocative. Like, literally, it's true, and I 100% get it as soon as I read that. You can see it in your mind's eye. It paints a picture. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I know. Those giant, like, super round yeah. kindergarten And, like, much great art. It doesn't, I know not, it doesn't only paint a picture about its subject, but about who is tweeting it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Can I Kick It? Great. This is a podcast about film festivals. My name's Colin Ashley. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined by... Andy Germuga. Emilio <laughs> This is a and fun then, new twist that Emilio's doing. Yeah, Emilio, yeah. I, I've given up the number one stay in bed. <laughs> Emilio goes Bruce Buffer on himself. Yeah, I mean, um, it's the thing is, I guess Bruce Buffer is interesting. I'm more going for, like, Mexican soccer announcer. I, sure, I yeah, often yeah, yeah. try to, like, pronounce my name on the more, like, Latin, like, Spanish way here. Sure. To yeah. try it. But I feel like some people don't really get it, so I'm not I'm really hitting it, you know? All right. Sure. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> um and today we have a guest. We're continuing our guest streak. <laughs> Two weeks with, in a row, folks. I Watch know, out. yeah, we're back in the game. <laughs> uh with researcher for the Blank Check podcast, JJ Burst. Hey. Hi. What's up? Thank you so much for being what up, here. What up? Yes. For giving us Thanks your time. For yeah, us. what up, what up, indeed. <laughs> yeah. So me and JJ, we, I've been trying to book JJ for a while, and we have gone back and forth <laughs> as to what subject we would talk about, So until we eventually landed on something that is a bit of a topic of interest for JJ, which is concert documentaries, and he wanted to ha- shout out a specific one that he thinks is underseen and under-discussed, which is Contemporary Color. And But before we get to that, we usually like to start our talking with our guests about their film festival histories and, like what sort of history of film festivals they Ooh. have. We got Check swag on screen, folks. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> a, it's an audio medium, but I wore costuming today. Yeah, I have a visual prop actually later, so this is good. I have two. <laughs> this, is, this is a shirt from the David Byrne American Utopia tour as wow. well. So, yep, I'm here. So your film festival history. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, back to that. Um... I think, I mean, the festival that is my primary festival home is the Wisconsin Film Festival, which, as said, I am repping via one of my two hoodies I think I have for the festival. 
they were advertised as very comfortable by Andrew Bujalski when he visited. And I was like, if Bujalski thinks it's comfortable, wow. it has to be. And then I think it's all the I king wear of comfort, Andrew Bujalski. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would trust yeah. him on comfy clothes. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> But I, I don't think I went to any film festivals before I started grad school in Madison. Um, I actually went before, right before I started grad school. I'd accepted an offer to come to grad school here and then decided to visit for the festival um, and mm-hmm. went to the Wisconsin Film Festival, which is held in Madison every April-ish. Uh, festival schedule coming out later this week. If anyone else from Madison wow. is listening, check it out. I'll see you there. I'll try not to leak. I guess it's not leaking, but you would know it was leaked if I do it. I got to stop. I have a leak problem. Anyways, um, like leaking guests, not something else. But um, I went in 2014. The first festival movie I ever saw was Sai Ming Liang's uh, 2013 film Stray Dogs, which was at the time supposed to be his final film. Uh, and I remember seeing it. It opens with like a very long shot of a mother brushing her children's hair. And I was in a theater, a convert. It was a Sundance theater at the time. It's now an AMC. And the I remember there's like eight people in there. Sai was not bringing the people out early in the morning, first day of the festival. And yeah. a man stands up about, you know, five minutes into the movie and says, oh, it's one of those, and then left. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> um, which I think, and I tell like all the time, that's I think about that. So the Wisconsin Film Fest uh, is my main home. I've been to other festivals too. I've been to the MKE Film Fest. I'm from Milwaukee originally. I love the Oriental Theater where that is held. Such a beautiful theater. I've been to Telluride once. Have any of you been to Telluride? No. no. Telluride it's, is very... Um, <laughs> I am on the record saying Telluride is a fake festival that isn't, <laughs> that isn't for the people. It's not for the people. I did not pay to go, first off. Sure. I will say I cannot afford that. I definitely right. did not have the money at the time. I went as part of a, um, a program with the University of Wisconsin where they bring grad students out every so often, which is kind of... I don't know how much of the inner workings of that part of the festival I'm supposed to say. Let's just say two UW-Madison alums replaced Tom Cruise when he stopped funding the education program. Wow. And they, as part of it, they were like, let's bring out Madison grad students yeah. um, and undergrads too, I think, over a year or two. So got to, I went to the yeah. 2016 festival, so I saw the world premiere of a little film called Moonlight. And because Barry wow. Jenkins was not famous and he, that's, yeah. yet, we had like an hour and a half sit down with him, which was really cool. Got to talk to him yes. about Goody Mob and <laughs> other things. Uh, and That's really cool. That guy can talk, that's too. Like, cause he's like, the best. We saw, like, all of us saw if Beale Street could talk in Toronto and he did a and a after. And yeah, he just like really masterfully can handle a Q and A for a for a crowd. Yeah. One of the, I mean, he just maybe the only good a Q&A cool guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He um, tell you it's like his home festival too. Like he used to run the George program there. Yeah, he worked there for a long time too. I mean, he had that long period between Medicine for Melancholy and Moonlight, where he and was Moonlight, working as yeah. a carpenter briefly too. But worked wow, at the at the festival. I think it's actually like part of. I mean, it is actually part of why he is who he is. I mean, the influence mm-hmm. of like Hao Shen and 
Wong Kar Wai comes yeah. from him working at this festival and seeing these films, volunteering at this festival. So yeah, it's really cool. Every year, the grad students who have gone down, they still see him all the time, even without a mm-hmm. film film there. He just seems to go most years. But Telluride is a fake festival fully because the stars don't have paparazzi. That's not just like a selling thing or they don't have big entourages except for Amy Adams at that festival. Uh, There's one movie theater in um, Telluride. It's awful. I think it's really old and like the like styrofoam is like falling off it. But they take like the high school and convert it into a theater. They take right. like the hockey rink and convert it into the Werner Herzog Theater, which is the best sounding theater I've ever <laughs> been to, which is where I saw Arrival. Um, oh. Oh. And uh, yeah, it's a ton of fun. You like bump into Rooney Mara at brunch and reconsider your entire life and <laughs> choices you've made. <laughs> Things that could have happened if you had actually made contact instead of averting at the last minute. Tell your ride is so weird. You do you like fly? You you have to fly there in like a very small plane. Yeah, so we flew from Madison to I believe Durango, which is like two hours outside, and then we took like a bus from Durango to Telluride. Telluride does have, it has a um, an airport. It is the scariest airport Mm -hmm. ever. Like it is literally positioned on a cliff. Like the runway goes off a cliff and. Telluride is essentially, it's like, it's very small. It's like two little cities. There's like where the city is and the coffee shops and the theaters and all that. And then there's where the hotels are, like a ski kind of lodge area um, where they have like a business center that becomes the Chuck Jones Theater as well. Um, But it's connected (laughs) via gondola. So the gondola is free. You take it up and then go on down. (laughs) But... From the gondola, you can see the airport. And the only people who I think fly into the airport are like Tom Hanks or whoever else. Yeah. Uh, But it looks... You're chartering a plane to fly into the airport. Yeah. It looks so... It's the scariest thing I've ever seen. I I mean, the bus is scary too. I mean, you're driving in like late night going through mountains. No. It's all. Um, (laughs) Our uh, friend of the show, uh, Jackson with Murphy was he went to Telluride as like a I think part of a school thing as well when he was in college and he uh he was like we went up there um I think he maybe talked about this on the podcast that he was like I like everything was fine when we got there but then I just like had an altitude sickness the whole time and it was like awful yeah we like, had yeah, that, like that suck. two two of the people I went with like the first day decided to hike and I was like, why would you do so this first? Crazy. And they were, like, sick for the rest of the festival. And I was yeah. like, no, you should be as lazy as possible. Right, yeah, conserve like, that energy for your film watching, absolutely. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, concert ducks. Yeah, I love them. I actually saw – here, I'll do this. I'll do it for you. I saw a Contemporary Color at the Wisconsin Film Festival in 2016, I think. And it was uh, like a, a fully joyous experience seeing this with a crowd of people. And especially yeah, like, I can imagine. as you can imagine, Madison, Wisconsin, where I live is like the ideal. I mean, where it's like a very 
liberal progressive i'm doing air quotes here it's a lot of old white people who love the talk who love talking heads <laughs> and yeah, sure. we're literally like celebratory in in their seats watching this film it's like a bunch of crunchy yeah. old people <laughs> so yes, we should say out. a little about what it is because i it's yes. not a well-known film i i don't think i had never heard of it before you were like we're, we're looking to move the needle about. though <laughs> uh do you want me to do this if yeah you, i can yeah, tell you it. about it yeah so basically in 2008 um, a high school color guard team, color guard being that thing you see at like half times of football games, mostly right. or like at the Beyonce. Macy's Day yeah, that sometimes. too. Yeah. Beyonce's incorporated <laughs> yeah. a lot into her iconography recently, but it's that thing where you're like, some people have guns, some people have batons, others have flags. <laughs> it looks like weird. <laughs> it looks like like. Yeah, if you're into guns, flags, or batons, or just general <laughs> right. dancing, um, it seems right. like uh, the kind of sport. But it, in 2008, a color guard team reached out to David Byrne asking for the rights to use one of his songs in their um, their shows, uh, and it sent him down a YouTube rabbit hole of just watching these oh it's like this movie is the ideal case for the youtube rabbit hole right yeah like most people they go down a rabbit hole and they become a fascist on youtube david Byrne got <laughs> really into flag twirling and batons so he sees this and is like this is such a cool art form and Byrne is of course the uh, former leader of talking heads but uh, a really like huge multidisciplinary artist. He went to the Rhode Island School of Design in the 70s. Um, he's like experimented or dabbled in all different kinds of art in addition to music. Um, he's a like celebrator of the art form of biking. <laughs> he's a big believer sure. in that. Um, I mean, yeah, everyone who lives in New York for a certain amount of time has a <laughs> David Byrne on a bike story. <laughs> yeah, yep. pass us on a penny farthing. <laughs> Um, so he gets super into this and eventually decides he wants to do a show where he can kind of like ex essentially take this art form that he believes is really interesting and kind of only exists in the background or as like a sideshow and give it center stage. So the idea was to have a show, uh, actually a series of shows. So this played... Um, one night in Toronto at the what was then called the Air Canada Center, and then two nights at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Although the film, as we'll talk about, has a moment where David Byrne pretends like this is the first time they've ever met each other, yeah. and it's the third time they've done it. Um, so, but to do this, like usually the way Color Guard works um, is that the Color Guard teams perform to something that's like pre recorded already. So there's usually not a live band right. performing with the color guard. And Byrne's idea was, what if I got nine other artists who I think are really interesting, pair myself and those nine other artists with color guard teams, they'll make original composition. So it's like a pretty demanding kind of thing to ask somebody. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Make an original composition and premiere it here. And I believe most of the artists... There's an exception. I know Devontae Hines' Blood Orange, his song ends up becoming one of his best songs on an album. I think most of the other songs are really relegated to this show. Um, mm -hmm. But make these original compositions, pair up with these color guard teams, pair up with them specifically at the end of their season. So it's like their final big performance together. 
yeah. um, and it's put on this concert for people. They get the Ross brothers. Yeah. So burn. They, yeah. Burn talks to. Um, let me pull this up. I should have made. I thought about making like a dossier and sending it to you, but then I was like, I, <laughs> I, I, I do mean, not that, have the time to do that. Yeah. And but we, yeah, <laughs> I would have felt very bad. Right. I'd be like, we <laughs> no. should get some money together All to the, send it to JJ. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I have this. He is at a Smithsonian gala, and he talks to uh, Josh Penn, the producer of Beasts of the Southern Wild. Uh, and asks like, hey, I'm doing this weird concert thing. Who are people I should work with? And he mentions the Ross brothers who at the time had only directed two features and were either about to start or like had started production on their third feature Western. And Byrne is like, awesome. I've seen their movies. Like apparently at some point he biked to a little art house in New York <laughs> and saw the Ross Brothers movies and was like, Chapatulis, I love it. So he reaches out to them um, and they had apparently like for a long time wanted to make a concert documentary. They had talked over and over again about like their ideas to take this form. I mean, concert documentaries in general are like a pretty unfairly denigrated form, I think. There's the exceptions like Stop Making Sense and Gimme Shelter and things like that. But for the most part, they're treated like this is the thing you add on to your CD to make it cost more at Best Buy <laughs> in the 90s and early 2000s yeah. or whatever. But so they're super excited. They don't know if it's going to be a project for a while. One of the cool things, um, one of the many cool documents associated with this little movie is uh, a diary that... Um, Turner Ross, one of the Ross brothers, kept and published on the Talk House. So okay. there's a lot of stuff in there about like where the funding comes from. They keep meeting with Byrne and they're like, is this really happening? Uh, it gets announced before they acquire funding of any kind. So like they're making this gambit that we will get funding. Eventually yeah. public domain comes in and gives them $500,000 to make wow. this movie, which is a small budget for many movies, but not for something like this. Um, yeah. And yeah, there's like a dream team of people associated with yeah. this movie I, too. I, look, um, I saw, yeah, just looking at the credits, you can see like the who's who of just like New York state indie crafts people like Robert yeah. Green, Sean Price. Robert Williams. Green, yep. Yeah. Yep. Amanda Wilder is in there too. Um, and most of them are serving just as active camera people capturing whatever yeah. they find interesting. Talkhouse, I feel like, is an underrated source for just, like, interesting articles. Like, I feel like you get, like, I know, like, Alex Ross Perry has, like, a defense of, like, <laughs> Venus and Fur and, like, Aloha and then, like, Delivers from Evil. And then I think there's also, like, a dialogue between him and Josh Safdie about the Entourage movie. And it's just, like, all these things that people don't ever reference. I'm like, I, like, <laughs> read the these all the time. They're so funny. Yeah, it's got Lou Reed's uh, review of Yeezus. So, one of the yeah. great cultural documents. The um, Yeah, I also, it's funny, you said uh, the guy who produced Beasts of the Southern Wild. Because, like, very, I think just in, like looking up some small stuff about the Ross brothers. Cause I have only seen this now and bloody nose. Um, they did a like a uh, documentary for the Ben Seitland movie, Wendy, um, like about the production of that, which is like sure. very interesting as I have not seen Wendy, but I'm like a movie that 
has like a pretty tumultuous like release. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be very curious to see what it was like on production. I need to see that. I did not know they did. But that. Yeah, they're they're cool guys. Like, um, I feel like Bloody Nose in twenty twenty, Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, play. It was at Berlin, and it was like a pretty big documentary mm -hmm. uh for like like it ended up like on a lot of year end lists so it seems like they're getting more on the map yeah and that's actually a movie they come up with is a very conceptual movie they come up with the concept yeah. for it contemporaneous with this film part of the production documents okay. are them they're literally making western and in post prod on western working with david byrne to come up with how they're going to shoot this thing and pitching for funding on bloody nose empty pockets all at the same time that's crazy. So, yeah. And they speaking of a making of documentary, I saw Colin log this. I should have sent this to you earlier. Yes, yeah. But then I was I, like, I do I want to? Yeah. I did also watch it. <laughs> okay, cool. They also, speaking of documentary Dream Team, they hired John Wilson, who <laughs> will become famous a few years after this movie um, yeah. of How To with John Wilson. They hire him to make a making of documentary about the documentary. <laughs> That is mostly a true crime documentary about two escaped it's, convicts. The escape at Dana Moore guys. It's yeah. so crazy. I was looking, I was like, this is escape at Dana Moore? Yes! <laughs> it's D Benicio Del Toro and Paul Dano. This is, I'm always telling everyone to watch escape at Dana Moore. This is like a perfect, you watch, uh, you know, contemporary color, you watch, um, the temporary color, yeah, temporary yeah. color, and then you watch all of escape at Dana Moore. <laughs> It's like a perfect three, <laughs> like three day weekend. Um, is that good? Yeah, that is. The show's good. Oh, I think it's okay, very. I've good. only seen um, the clip where Benicio goes. Says, don't, don't, don't tell, tell anybody. anybody. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> the show has a lot of stuff like that. Arquette is giving a crazy performance, um, mm -hmm. but it's. I think it's just very good, and everyone loves that new. Uh, Severance, I've been enjoying. I've only TV. seen the first two so far, but I've been enjoying so far. But yeah, Severance starring Talking Heads podcaster Adam Scott. That's true. It all comes back to David Byrne. <laughs> Great, the mastermind, the puppet master. Um, so yeah, so they hire that team. They um, they end up doing a pretty ambitious shoot where they decide if they're going to make this movie, and they have this uh, half a million dollars. They wanted to get to know the culture more. Originally, I think they kind of envisioned it to be a a break from their other films which are very much about embedding themselves within cultures and then approaching yeah. it with this kind of poetic lyrical technique um and then they end up doing the same thing i think for this movie where <laughs> they end up following a lot of the teams and going to meets and they're going to meets with a lot of the people involved with the movie so like david byrne keeps showing up at color guard kind of events and dev hines and ira glass is going to all these events too um and then they're filming alongside they go to the toronto show which is a lot of the John Wilson documentary. I think that was mostly, yeah. um, I don't know how much of that footage makes it into the movie. I think most of the movie comes from the Brooklyn shoot. The Barclays yeah, show. because yeah. they expand the team wildly for the Barclays. I think, yeah. I, I gotta find it, it's somewhere. I think it's this interview with, it's a Vox piece by Charles Bromesco um, where they list how many people they actually had shooting, but it is, they had, 10 different people shooting at a time on this movie with additional stationary cameras 
that. <laughs> so it's there's, so <laughs> there's yeah, double digit cameras shooting at this whole time. Um, and then they workshop the film. It's a very quick turnaround in production afterwards. It's like less than a year, which is very rare for them. I mean, Chapatulis, I think, was a nine month shoot on its own and then much longer in the editing room. And this is um, a quick turnaround, but they do a number of test screenings and each test screening, they actually seem to say they make it weirder, which when we talk about the actual film proper. (laughs) If we're I, I am curious, we sort of talked around in our group DM what we all think of the movie. I know Emilio likes it a lot. I'm very curious to hear what Andy says. And you have like interesting takes on a lot of concert ducks, I feel, Andy. (laughs) Sure. I mean, I mean, it was last week when Andy said, I'm not into popular music. That's right. Yeah, we're (laughs) in music mode. Good news. None of the kids recognize any of the artists besides Nelly Furtado. (laughs) Which is crazy. Um, I mean, yeah. So there's like, yeah, I don't know music, the music world very well. Um, I mean, to be honest, I found this documentary really frustrating and it made me angry mm-hmm. a lot um, because it like I just feel like the camera were like you get no sense of the choreography like you get you mm-hmm. really don't know what these routines are, what the shape of them are, what the stories of them are. And it really, really drove me crazy. I was like, <laughs> let me see the work the kids have done. And like, it was like, no, we're going to do a close up of like, of, of, of just the flag twirling or, oh, we're going to like show some people in the audience or we're going to cut backstage to David Byrne just wandering around getting lost. And I was like, <laughs> truly like, let me see the work, please. <laughs> it I... was a frustrating experience. I think you are not alone in that. I mean, a yeah, perusal yeah. of the very few IMDb reviews this movie has are yeah. mostly like, I thought this was going to be a show. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not whatsoever. No. Yeah. I mean, I get, I do get that. And like, I talked about this like on my letterbox a little bit. Cause I know people will throw the complaint sort of at, um, shut up and play the hits, the LCD sound system documentary where it's like, you get like a little bit of the concert because the movie's only like 90 minutes and the concert was like three hours long. And then you get like half that and like half an interview (laughs) with James Murphy and Chuck Klosterman, um, which is like very funny to think about now that they made such a hullabaloo about the end of their band. And now they're just back (laughs) and being annoying. (laughs) Um, Hosting super spreader events. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, and then last year, there was the Summer of Soul doc mm-hmm. that had the same sort of complaint where they would cut to talking heads about, like, the moment. And it's, like, not as egregious as its reputation might lend you to think. Yeah. But it is a bit frustrating there. But here, I just found it so... I feel like the Ross Brothers have such, like, a keen sense of humanity, especially mm-hmm. from watching, like... Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which is just like an open wound of a movie, and uh, and I, I was just thinking about that a lot, and thinking about how they what they choose to do instead of showing the choreography in a way uh, where they are like showing the backstage process and like sort of doing a thing where they keep like teeing up the next performance just with what's happening backstage as the other performance is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all very like emotional. Like I, there's the bit, my, my favorite performance, I think 
other than the Toon Yards one, which just is, like, the most visually expressive, I mm-hmm. think, where they're, like, layering image over itself. Um, the garage shot is, in the Toon Yards Yeah, one. it's so... The, I mean, that is the other thing I love, is that they keep, like, cutting to the suburbs and, like, cutting to, like, the practicing, which is, like, adding this layer about, like, the people themselves. Um, but the Ira Glass, Nico Muley, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. that one is, like, the most <laughs> emotional thing I've ever seen, where... They did this interview with all the people on the team and then played that as they were playing the music. And it's just, like, so beautiful, like, where you aren't fully seeing the choreography at every moment. But that one, they make a point to show when they're, like, when I'm doing this, all I'm thinking about is catching it. And then, like, they show the person catching it. And it's, like, so triumphant. And then you have people talking about... The thing with, like, all these Color Guard kids, which is, like, I was not very familiar with Color Guard, is they are all pouring their heart out constantly yeah. where they're just like I've tried for, like trained for this so long it's the the, the the last show of like me with all my friends and they're like explaining this and it's just like in that performance specifically they lean on that a lot and I think it just works to pull the emotion out and it is such a like victorious run through these performances that I am like more forgiving of not having the the view of it but i would like if oscilloscope like if they have a blu-ray out or whatever where you can also watch the performance that would be interesting <laughs> yeah i mean i yeah the ira glass one i think is the best one because there is like a narrative that i am able to hook into from the voiceover like the sto- the, the soundscape story is there yeah whereas like i just don't have a sense of what what any of these other pieces are really doing there yeah, was this than- was also um a complaint I will say that is kind of uh, was kind of lodged at the live show itself, where mm-hmm. there is such a distance between the performers way in the back of the house, mm-hmm. and then sure. the kids performing up above that they're like you could have just played <laughs> the song the tracks, and it right, wouldn't yeah. have changed it too much. The Ira Glass That's one, funny. it is so funny, but I mean I think we're probably all in agreement that that is the moment of the movie which is like you have the lead singer of Talking Heads, you have a Beastie Boy, you have St. Vincent, and you're like, my favorite musical performance was Ira Glass, host of This American <laughs> yeah. Life and inventor of the podcast. Uh, right. that Wearing medium... a weird like robe. Shirt. I know, yeah. Like, <laughs> like a, a weird... judge's yeah. robe. <laughs> but I was, I was actually, I was telling, I've, I've cried thinking about that performance twice today. I was telling my parents about it. And then I was telling my wife about it and she's seen it too. And both times I was like, Oh yep. God, am I actually going to cry on the podcast? These people invited me on and here it is. I'll, I'll break down. It's so, I mean, I think, so I think Burns concert docs generally are all like, they're a testament to many things, but for me, first and foremost, they're a testament to creation and specifically how the construction of an art piece works. Stop Making Sense has the very famous thing where it's just him on stage and he gradually brings the people out. He pulls off a similar mm-hmm. thing at the start of American Utopia and has the really cool Born Under Punches performance where each individual instrument starts with their sound to build up to the final thing. And this movie like, is just taking that to a whole nother level. And the, the Ira Glass performance in particular is so cool because it's, it's both giving you information, like teaching you what these kids are doing. They're using, yeah. I'm a sucker for process. I love hearing yeah. them describe the angles and who, what mark Catching they're looking the at. Or yeah, 
But then it also, I mean, it has the, the, the star is this young woman who talks about the kind of performance she's putting in because of the tough years she's had with her father passing and how like that moment she feels kind of his presence and the two yeah. people talking about, I look over at him and you know, this is the last time they will ever be partners yeah. together. And it's both like a last day of school movie or like, like it's American right. graffiti, but it's also, yeah, yeah. it's also stop making sense. And yeah, I mean, I am always a believer. I think it would be great if, there were just the bonus, like you're saying, Colin, <laughs> where yeah. give the people this other other kind of thing. And from all accounts, it seems like the Ross Brothers made a version more similar to that. They had yeah. a test mm-hmm. screening in November of 2015 where they looked at the feedback and just reconsidered like all the stuff they originally meant to do and then ended up making a more conventional movie and then say, hack the film to pieces, let's broaden our minds. So maybe reach out to Turner and Bill and be like, can you give me that version before you (laughs) hacked it into pieces? But this one I loved, and I think they find a lot of really lyrical moments to to move between. I mean, even in the first performance uh, with Lucius, who's definitely the band I'm least familiar with, they cut back at the end of that one to like the very darkly lit, like, suburban kind of gym and just them practicing Mm -hmm. with no music whatsoever and right from the start i'm just like this is it's such a cool way of moving between all the different kinds of forms that are at play and not only the because it's all it's a performance about collaboration right between these color guards and the musicians but then it's the Mm -hmm. ross brothers and their superstar team of camera operators of billions of camera operators finding their own way into like their own way to add their own element to it instead of just capturing what was there yeah and i'll say um like i really loved it and i i sort of at some points did feel the like well i would like to see the entire performance or have more of a concept of what this is but i think at some point i more realized and like came up with the take of but that's how you always appreciate color guard if you ever appreciate color guard if you ever do like i think it is interesting to like for a take on a documentary about this specific art form to be like we're not going to look at it all all at once because that's everyone's concept of it it's just like this big thing that happens to you at a distance and you just sort of appreciate them swirling the flags and we're gonna like get down to the nitty-gritty and see just how much work this is and i always appreciate something showing just how much fucking work goes into making something like that and to make something look so effortless effortless and yeah it's like the ira glass segment gets to that the best but i think the documentary actually does a good job of just like finding those moments throughout and just like all of these kids being people and like what the when they're the like weird cuts to people in the crowd and that audio like the lady in the crowd is so funny the lady in the crowd is very funny the grandpa the old grandpa at the end who's right yeah they show him the grandpa's terrible iphone footage that's one of the most charming <laughs> things i've ever seen in a movie that was actually by the way that was an original thing they were thinking about doing was giving the audience cameras and having them yeah. all shoot it and then cut it together which is similar to that beastie boys movie that had come out the what awesome i fucking yeah that. um and Isn't that like Kiefer Sutherland made that weird. <laughs> Did he actually? He's involved with it somehow. That this t- totally changes my, my conception of Kiefer Sutherland. But um, 
I wonder, what do you think Kiefer Sutherland's favorite Beastie Boys album is? Probably an early one. Yeah, that's true. He probably was there from the start. <laughs> License to L. He just listened to License to L and just like was sad they you never think, reached those. You think Donald things. handed it down to him? Donald was like, "You should check this out." Yeah. My friend Rick <laughs> made like, this <laughs> album. <laughs> 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 yeah. Your cousin, <laughs> Marvin Rubin. <laughs> um, yeah, talking about like. I when you when uh, I was watching it and it was the Ira Glass part, I was like, if the whole movie like maintains this level, like there's literally no way I'll be able to talk about it because it is like <laughs> so just like wrenching. Like you're talking about like cutting. It's such a smart thing to cut to like um, the footage of them practicing or like the footage of them in the suburbs, where it's like a, another sort of just like break of tradition where it would be like here's them practicing for the first part of the movie and it's like two weeks to show or whatever and then like we would see them go to Toronto and then go to uh, back to Brooklyn um, but it is just such a smart way to do it I think of just intercutting and like the way they find their sort of match cuts throughout is very like just cool and just like very nice to look at um, there's also the uh, one of the things that I found very like sweet is um there's they have like they're doing their cheers with like pixie sticks and they're all like talking about like this is um you know the lady is like giving her speech of like it's been 21 years that i've been doing this nothing like this has ever happened to us and like how excited these people are to put color guard on the map um and then they cheers with pixie sticks <laughs> and nelly Furtado, and it's like so beautiful <laughs> um Lucius, yeah, the bands are interesting because Lucius is a band I only know through that, like, Jake and Amir Vimeo show, Lonely and Horny, because they, like, advertised it as, like, we get Lucius to do the entire, like, the whole soundtrack is their songs. And it's, like, I never, I'd never heard of them, but then they, like, they make sort of those, like, stompy songs that are, like, good. I mean, we referenced it earlier, it but one orange. of the funnier moments in the documentary is when they're doing all the cross-cut of just, like, them telling the teams that, like, what band they took, and, like, most of them have no idea who these people yeah. are. Or the guy's like, uh, are you dads familiar with how to dress well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I Yeah, I mostly know Lucius. I think they're generally collaborative. They provide backing vocals for a lot of the songs from the Tweety album, the the album okay. uh, Jeff Tweety from Wilco made with his son um, Spencer, but yeah, I mean one of the 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 things you bring out like about the match cuts. I mean this is like a, a, it won best editing at the Tribeca Film Festival Film Festival podcast. Had to mention that. Great. Um, yeah. And Bill is the one who edits, and I think in general their their documentaries, if like above all else, are like they're very beautifully shot. Uh, so often they find these little moments that you don't see in other films, but they are like at their core, the best at editing, I think in the documentary realm right now. Um, I mean, one of the, the cool things I'm trying to find it here and I can't, I'm going to look for something, someone else talk. <laughs> sure. I, so, I mean, I, the thing about the editing and like these cuts and stuff is like, I think it really contributed to what I found really frustrating about it because, mm -hmm. like, it's sort of, like, is very impressionistic and gestures towards, like, oh, there must, like, there must have been a lot of work to do this. But, like, you don't really get a sense of what that process is at all. Like, you don't get a true sense of, like, 
this is like they meet this many times and they do this and and like this is like how the choreography is created and this is when they get the song and this is how they adjust to having like this new song that their artists are bringing to them like i i feel like there's like a lot of process stuff that's left on the table and you get it like a couple of times like that moment when the dads are talking about like oh if they come to us and like they're like we need like a car or whatever we'll tell them no or like they want to like raise the floor and they're we and we couldn't do that but we'll do almost anything else that we can or whatever like you get a few moments of that but mm-hmm. i found it very frustrating that it was like gesturing towards like there's all this stuff but like i felt like there was just a lot of like story that i wanted to see that was just left there that they sort of gesture towards and don't really like spell out in a way that i wanted them to yeah i wonder if the cut you're actually looking for is the jumbotron cut because they shot all yeah. this material for the jumbotron yeah. that that's i i really liked when they showed the jumbotron footage and like it's the stuff so in between the numbers i like liked a lot of the, how that all was put together a lot yeah you should have gone to the show i yeah <laughs> What, what year was it? 2000? You refused at the time, right? You were 2016. Asking, right? Yeah, he asked you. Yeah. yeah, David Byrne reached out. Right, yeah. He's he's my bud. Um, um, yeah, no. It, it would have been... I would have I would have gone if someone gave me a ticket, certainly. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think... I did, I, did, I did wonder, watching it a lot, like, what percentage of these are just people who bought a ticket to watch Contemporary Color? Right. But I assume it has to be, like, at least 40% just parents and like family i mean yeah i'm sure it's a lot of that i i I mean i guess you put david burns name on a thing like people will buy tickets to it like nelly Furtado. i get like certainly like you you have some names you say vincent at the time certainly yeah Yeah. i mean you got david burn in brooklyn (laughs) right yeah (laughs) there's a lot of folks looking like me and older than me that are rolling out to the David Byrne yeah. show. I mean, one thing the Ross brothers talk consciously about not wanting to make like we're going to put on a show kind of documentary. So that kind of sure. conventional, like they were literally like, Andy, we do not want your idea. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> um, they didn't want that conventional. I mean, one of the movies this movie reminds me of um, is Michelle Gondry's Dave Chappelle's Block Party, which also does a okay. similar thing of. That one's a little more chronological. It's almost like there's two. Have you seen Dave Chappelle's Block Party? I have not. No. Okay, so I know Chappelle is like a bunch of sure, stuff yeah. now that like yeah. there's a lot of weight to it. This was my comfort movie for a long time. It is so joyous. It yeah, is yeah. the best concert doc made since Stop Making Sense. It's an unbelievable wow. movie. But he did a similar thing where he put on a show um, in just a neighborhood in New York um and brought like marching bands and stuff from other places and then it's a show that reunited the fugees a young kanye west is there (laughs) so you you can explore all the baggage you want in one film the (laughs) roots are there erica badu who we talked about earlier yeah (laughs) (laughs) but that does this thing shut up katie (laughs) (laughs) trey that does this thing too where it, it cuts between the performances, um, which are all spectacular, but also some of the prep, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff of like just most deaf drumming and making jokes. And you're like, how is this not the most famous person in the world? But also Chappelle <laughs> talking back when he used to talk to people in neighborhoods instead of making sure they couldn't get affordable housing. Um, <laughs> he, he talks to the people who live there in these really interesting houses. And it does the same yeah. thing where it will cut away from a performance to like someone who's watching the performance, like or will be watching the performance in a number of days. Um, and there it's a little more chronological, but here it's just that. It's just constantly like, it's not the full process, it's impressions of the process. 
And I am someone, I mean, if we want to talk about Burns' next concert film, American Utopia, like a little bit, I I really like that film. I saw the concert live. It is one of the best shows I've been to. Mm -hmm. But I think Spike Lee's approach there is very much like, I mean, it's like partially like Jonathan Demme's approach, which is just give us the show, but do what we can to heighten the show and give a, a bigger impression of the show and the Ross brothers are like we don't want to just give you an impression of the show we want to give you an impression of everything surrounding the show but we also want to create our new things like that sequence the St. Vincent sequence with the superimposition Mm -hmm. of the two images over each other throughout that was Mm -hmm. my desktop background for like two years because it's just it's so much about one finding a way to merge these two art forms but also continually create something new which I just find, I have seen so many concert documentaries that are just coverage. I mean, one of my favorite genres of film is just watching like whatever, you know, KEXP puts up their live performances. My daughter, Remy, will be like, after we finish Sesame Street, she's like bonus pitchfork. And I think about the monster I've made when we watch Waxahachie at the 2021 Pitchfork Music Festival or whatever. But there, there's so much concert footage is just assembling kind of, we have people in their stationary position. We cut between these five different shots. And this is just, you never know what the next shot is going to be or what the next weird editing trick is going to be and it just feels like it's whole new thing but i also wish i had gone to the show as well yeah Yeah. american utopia is a weird one i don't really like it i remember when i watched it i had like a pleasant enough time because it is like interesting to watch uh what spike lee does with it um but then i mean like at the time it had that like sort of resistance ending and it was like a kind of left a sour taste in my, my mouth i should have rewatched it maybe but i uh dan malloy has I this remember, um, like letterbox review where he calls it like for better and worse the last kind of piece of trump era liberal kitsch sure, and yeah weirdly contemporary color is kind of one of the last of the obama era liberal kitsch because yeah. there's that moment where i i think uh is it the Supreme Court decision is made about oh, gay right. marriage? Yeah, the gay marriage, yeah. There, <laughs> and there's like, news footage of the uh, of the White House in rainbows. And stuff, <laughs> in yeah. rainbows. And, and we're like, then we solved David it. Byrne comes out and it's like, America has changed. And then there's a song yep. about how <laughs> about everything is changing. <laughs> the, um, that, yeah. And then, I mean, they also talk about that <laughs> a little bit <laughs> in the John Wilson doc. Where you see <laughs> the newspaper that's like the, 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 the Daily Post or whatever that's like the two Danamora guys where it's like one is dead and one is uh, arrested. And then, like, at the very bottom, it's like gay marriage or whatever. <laughs> um, it is. Um, but yeah, I, and I, I remember, like, I just, the dancing wasn't, like, my favorite. And. Um, oh boy. <laughs> it, oh, you it don't like, like the robot very, dance? <laughs> I, I just, I mean, what I said on Letterboxd, and it's all I sort of remember, is that they all look like Scarlett Johansson in that marriage story meme, <laughs> where she's like, you know, very like white lady wine dancing or whatever. But, um, uh, it, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, American Utopia, like, of the things that I, like, 
watched or rewatched for today is like my favorite of the thing like of the david byrne films that i've seen um it's like i do like i love the way it starts i love the beginning with like him and his like simple prop and i really do i love the staging and the choreography yeah. of it all like i really like i love the dancers i think the two like the two dancers are so wonderful in that and like on it like watching all these mo- like the 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 hell you town about scene is like the only time i like really like felt a like big emotion response re- emotional response to anything that we for that i watched wow. for today like i think that it's like and a, a lot of that is spike lee because he like cuts yeah. in the footage of the of the, the the photos and oftentimes loved ones holding those photos and like it's just incredibly moving to see those faces and and i think it like he's really like i really like spike like I have talked about this on the podcast before. I love Spike Lee's capture of Passing Strange. That's, like, maybe my favorite Spike Lee project. Um, mm. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of contenders. But, um, but I think he's so good at, like, yeah, at capturing the arc and story of, like, a piece that's happening on stage. And, like, I, I really love, like, the way that he is able to, like, both be in the, in the, in the, in the staging and hold back from the staging in like in alternate moments and the way that that happens and i think like yeah just the moments he chooses to accentuate like a little bit more like cinematic stuff in american utopia is like really exciting to me yeah i so i saw the stage show uh well when it was so american utopia started as an album right and then it was a tour i saw it at madison it was my celebration for think finishing coursework in my phd Mm -hmm. i was like can i please buy these way overpriced tickets to my Mm -hmm. wife who has a real job and (laughs) could supply the funds to me and she said yes um and the gimmick there of course is that no one on stage is ever attached to one spot on the stage which is like the opposite of a contemporary color where you have these people in front of the uh, music artist moving Mm -hmm. gracefully to this choreography and then you have a bunch of wires for 10 different live acts behind them so i've always thought like contemporary color is so clearly an influence on the stage show for american utopia Mm -hmm. burn gets obsessed with youtube videos of people dancing yeah there's no guns in american utopia the one thing he doesn't bring over but there is this sense and he's not yeah (laughs) yeah i think so (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what if, what if at the end, you know, it's this like resist era liberal thing and then he's handing out arms <laughs> at the end or something. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, but he's I am like, pro to it. I headcount.com, but also, <laughs> um, remember there's one I'll single issue you should have <laughs> yeah. on your mind. I'm counting headshots, yeah. Um, <laughs> but... I think he's often credited for being... Uh, I, I do think it's a pioneering stage show. It's not the only show I've seen like that. I saw Solange in 2016, and she had a similar kind of stage show that was... Mm-hmm. like I don't know why. I mean, I guess more people aren't doing it because it seems really hard to pull off technically. But yeah, it's yeah. so cool to see them. And this, of course, has the interesting... like It is a very contained space where you have these like threads hanging all right, around the, the stage that people go in and out of. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of the build from Stop Making Sense, but it happens very quick. It's like he can't wait. Mm-hmm. He like tosses the brain and then everyone's on stage. Right. But there's also this this thing there of just like, I think with the, the, the Spike Lee thing, the early parts that are really devoted to capturing the show, and maybe this is where I 
diverge from you, yeah, Andy. Those parts are the parts where I'm not, I'm like, I wish I were watching the actual show. Like, yeah. I want to see Spike Lee do his own thing. And when I saw the show, he did cover it. Um, Byrne often ends his shows with a cover for a while. There's this great interview, I think it's with Esquire, where Byrne talks about always ending with a cover. And he talks about doing um, a Whitney Houston song. And Spike Lee is like, what the fuck? You do a Whitney Houston song? <laughs> I would, what? Like, uh, but um he ended with the the Janelle Monet cover too, and I will say in person it definitely felt like my dad <laughs> deciding sure. that he cared about these issues all of a sudden. And yeah. Burn too. I mean, one thing to talk about with Burn too is Burn was scary. In Stop Making Sense, he is so mm-hmm. scary for most of that movie, sure. and right. also like beautiful and graceful and yeah, yeah. dancing with a light in the a lamp when the way no one else has ever yeah. danced with anything. But he's he's scary when he looks into the camera during Girlfriend Is Better. It's terrifying, uh, and he is not scary whatsoever anymore. Um, no, the white hair is part of it. I think also maybe in a way that won't get you or me sued. Maybe stopping using certain materials has made him less scary sure, yeah but like in that seeing that live it was very much like this is in the right place this it, it felt more like the part where he says everybody go vote right in yeah. the movie that is when spike really comes alive and has yeah. and he talks about the production too like rushing to get more and more names in and feeling the urgency of right. this moment where people are, I mean, the, in that GQ interview, he has a moment where he can't even remember the name of someone who has just been slain and Byrne has to come in and and tell him the name because he's having trouble keeping up. Mm-hmm. And there's like a real urgency that only comes from that collaboration with Spike. And I think the stuff before that too, the performance of Blind, where the camera literally tilts at one point yeah, so then each the, right, way. With the choreography, yeah. It's just so cool. And they did work... Uh, closely with Annie B. Parson, who mm-hmm. Byrne's been working with for a while, at least since, um, I don't want to get the name wrong. So let me make sure I find the name here. But in 20, like the early 2010s, um, he made a musical called Here Lies Love. Do you, do you, do any of you know about this? Yes, no. I do. That's, okay. <laughs> uh, the, that's the, uh, Imelda Marcos, right? Um, yeah, the Imelda Marcos. it was Marco. like immersive. It was at the public. And I know like there were like two levels and like you had to be prepared to stand the whole time and like dance and stuff. It was like a real, like, it was a real crazy, it was all about her, you know, her and her shoes and stuff. Like, yeah. It a, yeah. It's um, this musical about former Filipino first lady Imelda Marco. Um, Choreographed by Annie B. Parsons, who does the um, choreography here, but also lyrics written by Burn, music by Burn, and uh, big beat producer Fatboy Slim, and That's it's right. got it's got yes. some jams. There's some really good stuff yeah. on that album. It was too. it was like a big hit, and then they couldn't find the right space to transfer it out of a nonprofit to like have a commercial run. I believe was what happened with that one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'll just say about American Utopia that like maybe going further than even JJ did is like watching stop making sense and watching stop making color it's like it's, it's hard to verbalize this but i think there is a space in which like a desire to be like co- collaborative and worldly at some point starts coming off as just like you are just taking other people's interesting parts and just like making it part of your whole thing and like mm-hmm. that's sort of where i got to with american utopia where it's like 
even though he like credits Janelle Monae and he like talks about how diverse and like from all these people he got these musicians from, it's like the one time I have ever in my mind been like the white the Talking Heads is a little white guy doing reggae. It it is it, this is sort of the vibe of the Talking Heads, and, it, and it's just like in most of the situations they just like project enough coolness or like enough like or enough entertainment to where I'm not ever thinking about that and it's like I'm not even that much of a person who cares about that sort of stuff but in, during American Utopia was the one time where I was like if I ever like I, I, I guess I used to think like if I ever like got to talk to David Burns it would be a very cool conversation and now I'm like that might be hell to listen, just sit there <laughs> and, listen, and listen to him talk well, about like his travels in Cambodia or whatever. <laughs> if you if you read Chris Franz's book about his time in Talking Heads, um, it seems like it used to be hell at least. But um, no, it's like uh, the Burn has always walked that. I mean, Burn is one of the most important artists of my life. I wouldn't be who I am without him. I think, but Burn has always walked that that line of what we now call cultural appropriation and what I think he calls and Spike Lee also calls cultural appreciation. And one of the things I've always admired about Byrne is that he does, aside from um, the great album, the great experimental album he made with Brian Eno of all the sampled voices, for the most part, he tries to work with the actual musicians um, although now that I'm saying that, I'm like, well, Drake made the song with Migos too. So is David Byrne just <laughs> a Drake culture vulture? I don't know. But there is this sense of working. <laughs> and one of the, have, have any of you listened to Angelique Kidjo's um, album from, when was that from? Um, let me pull this up. Angelique Kidjo made an album in, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to find this. She made an album in 2018. <laughs> Um, that was re-recording Talking Heads Remain in Light, but doing it in a way that actually took a lot of the African influences and made them more prominent. Um, so it's wow. this weird kind of thing where it's almost like, like that's what I find so interesting. Burn, I always think in comparison to another kind uh, of burn figure in Japan, Haromi Hosono, who also is somebody who walks, I would say he walks the line crosses the line even more where he steals from all kinds of cultures but both of them have this idea of like kind of like there is I mean for so long any of the sounds talking heads incorporated were under the silo of global music right and I think what's cool about their music and also interesting and occasionally troubling is the way those influences just work their way in and are just there they're treated as a sound to pull from rather than distinctly like something to dress up in although i fully understand like i too would be nervous talking to david Byrne about some of this and he, he did have the controversy not that long ago about recording an album with almost no women i think there were no women artists involved in the actual recording of american utopia i can confirm mm. which one that was but there is like there is this sense of i think there is a good thing at the center of burn stuff not sure it always comes off and definitely in American Utopia it does occasionally great at the same time those performers in the band are amazing yes sure, they're, they're yeah. incredible it gives, it's like the one moment where it's like Andy was talking about how, to, how how what you talking about made him feel and it's like the one thing I couldn't shake that entire time it was just like 
I think I would rather listen to Janelle Monet sing this than than listen to David Byrne sing it. Like that is like the fundamental thing I couldn't get past like during that performance. It, where it's and just I like, shook her hand at there's like a very sixteen. Yeah. Wow, because she was a moonlight. She's great. Sorry. I mean, yeah. truly. Yeah. I told and her it, Tightrope was a top 10 song of the century, and I shook her hand, and she said thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, Emilio. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I mean, that's a great story. You got to tell it. But it's like, yeah, where it, it's like there is something very emotional and, like, important about that song and that specific, like, framing of it that Spike does in, like, the show moment, And but I still couldn't be, like, but if the person who like wrote it and had like more of a conception about like what this means to them personally, instead of somebody who just like admits at the beginning of it, plucked it from somebody else, I I think I would have had more of a connection to it. it I will say that Byrne did reach out to Monet to get approval to do it. Um, yeah. He says although, it in, in the in the movie. He's like, yeah, I. Although he does say that. <laughs> He does say Janelle it. has never seen it. <laughs> so I don't know if she's interested okay. in seeing what happens. Right. But That's very funny. Emilio, live, I was fully with you. Live, I was just like, um, dad is having a political awakening. <laughs> and it's a transfer, too, of aesthetics, right? I mean, in the it's like the like Talking Heads work is not apolitical. I mean, it is prophetic in many ways. It is apocalyptic. It is... I mean, Byrne gives interviews. I hate when people do this with musicians, but I'm about to do it. He gave interviews in the 70s where he was talking about smartwatches and the surveillance state and all kinds of stuff. But like back then it was always incorporated in this very abstract, poetic, dangerous, not like teachable lesson kind of style, which yeah, at American yeah. Utopia Maybe. at its worst is very much. Let me yeah, tell you is- about... Yeah, Let me maybe tell you that's about the line where it's crossing, where it's like I think all of that stuff used to be like subtext and emotional context, and like musically, like brings it all together and makes it beautiful. And now, when it it's like hit a little more explicitly, is when you start hit getting like I don't know if David Byrne should be the person to be doing this. Yeah, but, but I mean that's another thing with contemporary color. His song kind of sucks. <laughs> it's one of the weaker numbers I think in the movie. It, it, yeah. He does. Um, he doesn't sound very good singing it. I think like it's, it doesn't fit his yeah, voice. Yeah, and I think well, he has a good like. voice. I mean, I mean that's a, maybe one thing we sort of skipped over with contemporary color, which is that I adored it. I loved it. I cried at it, which I haven't done in a movie in a while. But I am like, are any of those songs like the Tune Yard song is good and like the Ira Glass thing is doing its own thing? But I'm like, oh, most of these musical artists, I'm like. These are all right. They all sound like the trailer, mo- the movie trailer version of their themselves. Have, wow. The Blood Orange song, I will say, is my favorite Blood Orange song. It, I it becomes, to believe that's a good song if I just listen to it so by good. itself, and maybe it was, it, it's just weird within the context of the movie. I mean, I like Blood Orange certainly. <laughs> Beckett, it's a, Sam, it's a different. It becomes a different. Yeah, I was about to say they opened Beckett with a Blood Orange song. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he wrote an original song for. They credit him and Beckett like five times. How are we still talking about Beckett? <laughs> because it is the movie it's, of my lifetime, maybe. <laughs> March of 2022. It is time to leave Beckett. Beckett behind. will never die, actually. <laughs> maybe I'll and that's what Beckett the movie's tonight. about, that you can't kill Beckett. I'm going to watch Beckett um, tonight. <laughs> oh, Beckett is so There's sick. a Blood Orange song? I'm in. I love it opens Blood Orange. A Blood Orange song shot by um, uh, a pitch upon Grace Ethical's regular DP. Uh, scored by Ryuchi Sakamoto. Wait, what? For real, and it's an incredible score. Do you know? So I um, mentioned Haruo Hosono earlier, who was in a band with Ryuchi Sakamoto, which oh, Yellow Magic Orchestra, yes. one of my all-time um, favorite bands. 
I think I just get into he has like a cover album where he covers Volare and like yeah I think I yeah I just get into this um, there's a whole world that cover- DM me I will send you any Rex you need <laughs> yeah. for the YMO world <laughs> oh my god yeah. Vicky Creeps is in Beckett <laughs> oh Vicky Creeps is so good God David Washington's incredible <laughs> Um, I'm uh, truly, if you watch Beckett, this will be like the success of the podcast as it exists. Dude. Just anyone who watches Beckett. Yeah. I mean, but come I mean, on. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's certainly a movie with a lot of great elements. Um, that is what I'll say about Beckett. But, oh my uh, God. It's Guadagnino's editor too. Okay. And former partner, which is crazy. I didn't know that. Um, but enough about yeah, that. Really, you were in the middle of um, making a point, I think. Yeah, you okay, or no. No. Sorry, sorry. Talking <laughs> yeah, about the Blood Orange music and like was, how the songs are very good. Oh, I, I was thinking about was like, because I watched, the order in which I watched these in like rewatch slash first watch form for this was that I watched a Contemporary Caller for the first time. I watched American Utopia for the first time. And then I watched Stop, Rewatch Stop Making Sense just to like have a refresher. And I enjoy watching it. And I had this sort of feeling of, which is a weird feeling because Stop Making Sense is obviously the much earlier document. I'm just like, contemporary color goes so hard in like the emotional and like connections aspect of this sort of performance and performing and like what sort of a person like David Byrne can bring to the, this and what all these kids are feeling and like these, the shared experience of like these shared micro experiences that, that one have while performing. And then American Utopia is to like in some good aspects and some bad aspects to me is just like, in a lot of ways, a very like earnest attempt at trying to capture the stage show and preserve it, and like in some ways give it some more cinematic touches. But in a lot of ways, it's just to be like, this is a show that existed, and we think it's good, and Spike Lee was interested in it, so we shot it, and we tried to like, we are trying to preserve, we're trying to give people at home the experience of what it might have been to sit at, sit and watch it live, which is like the opposite of what contemporary color does. And as and then I did, mm-hmm. I was wondering like could you do both could you do the thing where it's like you're capturing energies and then you're capturing the experience of watching it live and then that is just what stop making sense does is a perfect document of the energy of watching people give a performance and like the work that goes into it but also like the joy that comes from it and it's also just like a thing that you can watch and be thoroughly entertained by it's just like if you were watching a concert in its own as its own thing yeah yeah andy was talking about how the Monet song in American Utopia is the only time he got emotional throughout all, all three of them. And like truly every time I've watched stop making sense in full, when it gets to this must be the place I'm just like a puddle. It's like a, a, the images of him, like with the lamp, just like give you chills. It's so beautiful. And like, obviously Demi, like his, his style is like so steeped in that movie. And I mean, talk about, like, the Ross Brothers and Demi, like, of just humanity, like, that they're bringing to everything with everyone involved. Um, and, like, when I was... I, I didn't get to watch it in full this time, but I was just, like, skipping around to, like, the bits that I love. Um, and that one is just, like... That that mix of the song is just the best also. And then um, The Lamp, it's just so crazy. I Every single time, I'm like, I can't believe that they did it. It's my favorite moment in the history of movies. <laughs> Like, full disclosure, it's so beautiful. And yeah, Demi does do that thing of like, I've always argued it's kind of, it's like an attempt 
to not give you the show. It's an attempt to give you the experience of the show. I mean, the same way Spike Lee, I will say, did ver- work very closely with Andy Parson. And there are some shots in American Utopia. I fully just don't understand how they did given the presence yeah. of the chains. There is that one shot. I can't remember which number it's during where everyone's lined up on one side and then Byrne is on a side by himself and the camera tracks back or like dollies back. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, where is the camera? Like, how are the chains? Not? And then the chains are in the shot when it cuts back to it later. And I'm like, where was this? Where were these people? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't actually know the production details on American Utopia, how many times they shot it. I yeah. know Stop if Making Sense. Without an audience at all. Or, yeah. yeah. Stop Making Sense is a cut of three different shows at the Pantages mm-hmm. Theater in Los Angeles. And the first shot of it is very famously fake. It was captured yeah. in a studio to get that close up of Burn Shoes as he walked out. Um, but there's just something, I mean, a lot of the lyrical touches I find so beautiful in um, contemporary color, like the superimposition of the images in the um, St. Vincent performance are taken from Stop Making Sense, just in a much yeah. less maximal way. Like the dissolves in heaven are so unbelievably beautiful. And I think part of my struggle with American Utopia, seeing the show live, you're like, oh, he's found new life in these songs again. Seeing the show on film, I'm like, I like, it's like Spike Lee saying, you need, this must be the place. We already have this must be the place at home. And it's like, this yeah, is yeah, not, yeah, there's yeah. no, the lamp comes later. I mean, there still is joy in American Utopia having some of the early, or like the later Talking Head songs that were not mm-hmm. in the film. It, like, it's got the song from Transit. It's got Blind. Um, do you remember that Transit closes with Road to Nowhere? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, that's like, talk about favorite moment in the history of film. That's like, I'll just open my file of Transit and watch that all the time. Never been more Francis pissed off at a movie than Christian Petzold just straight trolling me at the end of his impeccably made, <laughs> terrifying film. But... The uh, yeah, there is. I think Amer- some of American Utopia does suffer from that comparison. But the last twenty minutes of that movie, I think, are like it's Spike deciding, like, it's not to say that the first hour and twenty minutes are not without interesting touches. I mean, one thing he does is yeah. he does those God's eye shots that are yeah. so yeah. common in his work, but also it's something Demi would never do. There are mm-hmm. some shots of the audience. I mean, Demi's whole thing was don't show the audience. It just reminds people that they're not that they're there. Not there yeah. Although at the end of Stop Making Sense, he cuts to the audience like five times and is like, yeah. it's like this yeah. huge release. That one like, yeah, like, yeah. Does it yeah. so triumphant. It's, yep. it's so triumphant at the end of like when he like saves it at the end. You're like, holy shit, there were people there. <laughs> Someone saw this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead there's of, also, oh, like, I, I feel like there. one very early shot that's like from behind that you see the backs of the audience's heads. Yeah, and you can kind of see, when you do see the audience, they are so darkly lit. I mean, one of the crazy yeah. things about Stop Making Sense 2 is, like, the lighting was done by Byrne. Yeah. <laughs> which. That's, right. wow. It's just so nuts. I mean, again, the other thing, that's too, right. with that with that show is just, it. I think it's literally the greatest live band ever assembled. I mean, when you have, like, Bernie Worrell deep in your bench of performers, and you're not mm-hmm. even bringing him out until a few songs into the show, you are just cooking at a level no one else has ever cooked. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like life during wartime, that performance of it, it just means so much to me personally. It's like 
this is going to be personal anecdote train, but it's like I have been working nights and I have been very tired recently. And I have just been feeling like a bunch of like weird stresses and anxieties. And I, a lot of people have, been t- have told me like, well, you need to sort of like exercise because it's just like, I know you get tired from working, but you just stand a lot. And so you're not, you're not, that's not really exercise. That's not really getting your endorphins in a way that's really going to relieve your anxiety. But I've always never, I've just never had the motivation. But life, there's never been a time in my life where I've never been able to listen to life during wartime, that specific performance to it, whether I'm watching the movie or just listening to the Stop Making Sense album on Spotify where I haven't been able to just get up and just start jogging in place and, and just dancing the entire song through. And it was a miracle of a workout yesterday, I'll say. <laughs> and it yeah. just like... Because I do, I do have a weird relationship with Stop Making Sense and that I do think it's like maybe the greatest movie ever made, but it, there is always a moment when it I is. watch it at the beginning where it's like... Did it, what, I watch it at the beginning and I'm like... This first song's cool. I'm not the biggest person into heaven it, than most people, so I'm always like, "Oh, do I overrate this?" And then by the time, like life during wartime, and it really gets into like the moving and the whole band is there, I'm just like, "Ah, nobody's ever done it like this." Just like the burn, yeah, I mean, burn dancing with the singers, just when they start doing Tom Tom Club, everything that Chris France is doing, it, it, in, I, I, in Tom. I think the number that suffers the most from comparison. I mean naive melody you're not going to match it but like once in a lifetime which is such a huge song now and was at the time one of their bigger hits but like the version in the demi film is a four and a half minute long take on burn Mm -hmm. himself and then it ends with this cut when the lights kick in and the voices raise and you like there is a song called Heaven in that movie, but that is the moment you ascend to heaven in that film. <laughs> and the Spike Lee, both the choreography of Once in a Lifetime in American Utopia, the stage show, but also the way Spike films it is it is like constantly chasing for that moment. There's so many moments where you're like, was this when they cut to that point in the, the earlier film? But Demi just holds for so long on that shot of Just Burn. I think a, a reason why that song has become so iconic. I mean, I think that is Burn's iconic performance. That is such a feat of athleticism and just mania and creating a character that is separate from yourself on stage. And I think it's so attributable to Demi having the confidence to sit with that shot for so long, which is not necessarily something Spike does. Not something I would expect Spike to do necessarily, but. I do miss, there is sometimes American Utopia feels a bit like we had a bunch of shots and we're cutting between them for coverage as opposed to that very much like Demi sat down and planned out what each of these were, which contemporary color feels like it was, but it of course was not whatsoever. It was this mess of a billion people shooting and then Bill Ross put it all together in the editing bay. But there is just something I miss about the the American Utopia, which I still really love. I think it's a, a wonderful movie. And um, a lot of those performances are so cool. And especially, again, that band. They're not the Stop Making Sense band, but no one is. They're their own cool thing, mm-hmm. especially the guitarist from my hometown, uh, Milwaukee. But like, there's something so cool about those people finding new life in the songs that I don't think Spike is always doing with his filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that moment in American Utopia is funny because it's like all, him introducing all of those people, and I very and I did sort of get a chuckle of 
him saying the guy was from Palo Alto and then the most Palo Alto looking ass guy <laughs> in the history of the universe walks out playing whatever he was playing. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, it's like, I don't even blame Spike or, or even Burn really. I mean, maybe this goat falls a little more on Burn's side for like why I don't like it as much as Stop Making Sense because it was like conceptualized as a different thing. It's like Stop Making Sense has the benefit of just like being thought up and rethought up ground up for the purposes of making stop making sense and american utopia was created with the purposes of being a stage play and like any film version of it that exists is uh just people trying to capture a thing that was conceptualized for a different medium and there's gonna be some clunky stuff there like obviously like they're shooting in a tight theater with people in it so they can't just put cameras wherever they feel and they're just like there's going to be limits to where, yeah, I did feel what you, like you were saying, JJ, where there are just some shots in it where you're like, okay, this is just coverage. He needed to, cause he needed to move the camera somewhere. Cause if he can't, he doesn't want to just stay on this shot because it's maybe not interesting at this point. Whereas I, there's like not a single moment in stop making sense. There's not a single cut where I'm like, there isn't something either joyous or interesting or scary or funny being gathered from any of these cuts or cuts or any of these shots. I think part of it too, just comes from like, uh, there's a lot of different, I'm not saying they're the same artist. Spike Lee and David Byrne are very different, have very different concerns, but there is something to be said about how both have had. And Spike says this in interviews uh, surrounding the film, they've both had long careers, pretty successful careers but they are always chasing some kind of new venture. They are always exploring some kind of new path. I mean, what's so exciting, I mean, it's hard to think of people their age who are still experimenting quite as much as they are. Yeah. I mean, soon after this film, I mean, Byrne is back now uh, when things started opening up with his own like art show <laughs> that is happening and American Utopia is back yeah. and uh, yeah. Spike is and always like, doing, yeah. yeah. When there was like, a, like during, when Omicron was like starting to go through like all the all the Broadway shows, they like did a week where they were like doing like a different set list because like they had not, they had they couldn't do the choreography because a lot of people were out. So like yeah. they're like still like playing around with the show sometimes sometimes through necessity, but like it's yeah, it's in a different theater now. It was at the Hudson now. It's at the St. James, um, which is a, a bigger theater, uh, I think, and like a little more grand, which is interesting. But um, but yeah, it's yeah, but yeah. Um, those are the, those are the music docs. <laughs> yeah. Are there? I'll say real quick before uh, we move on or something, if you let me. <laughs> Please. Are there any other concert docs that stand out to you Ooh, that that you're a huge fan? I mentioned Dave Chappelle's Block Party earlier, but I mean, I mentioned Gimme Shelter, I think too. But what else? What are other things that you enjoy? What other approaches maybe do you enjoy? One that I saw recently that I really loved was Jazz on a Summer's Day. Oh, amazing! Um, so good. Yeah so good um and that is like just like i mean it's got such a stacked lineup of people um and also has like the big emotional moment uh where they do that violin concerto that's so famous and like it is that one is one of those things where it's like all those sort of archive docs like um i mean summer soul has a bit of it and like uh i think was it apollo 11 was the doc that came out recently and then like oh amazing grace which is one of my favorites for real for real uh Mm -hmm. but just like that sort of whatever like blu-ray rip of jazz on a summer's day that's out it is like such a crisp film grain like aesthetic to it all 
to the performances that is just like so beautiful to watch. And I think Amazing Grace has that also. Like the team that did that restoration did an incredible job with like this mismatched footage. Um, and then like speaking of Demi, I do like the uh, Tennessee Kids a lot. That's got some great numbers and great moments in it. Can I tell um, you something about Jazz on a, a summer's day? This please. is my Letterboxd review, but this was, I think, my first one on a new Letterboxd. So that movie Uh-oh. is co-directed by Burt Stern and Ara McCabian. In the 1960s, Burt Stern was married to the ballerina Allegra Kent. And uh, reportedly, allegedly, his heavy use of amphetamines led to the end of his marriage to her. And during the last two years of Ara McCabian's life, his close companion was former ballerina Angelina Kent. Or Allegra Kent, I mean. Wow. So... I'm just an incredible movie, beautiful. The restoration that they had going around the rep houses uh, that is now available elsewhere is amazing, but T. Yeah. Um, my frame of reference for this uh, long-time listeners will not be surprised by is uh, uh, Sondheim Birthday music, uh, concert documentaries. Um, there's a couple of um Well, th- well there's, there's Follies in Concert, which is like a documentary about them putting on Follies in concert, which is like sort of famous because like the original Follies cast album uh, was sort of like a rush job and they couldn't do it on two discs. They could only do it on one. So they cut out like a lot of stuff. And so it was really seen as like a possible redemptive moment for that score. Cause that show hadn't done tremendously. Like it had been expensive and uh, ran okay, but like was ultimately a flop. Um, and so they do this big concert gala production at Carnegie hall. And there's a documentary that's like about them putting it on. And I have, that one's a little frustrating. Cause it's like, it doesn't quite strike the balance between like showing the songs and showing the backstage stuff in a, in a great way. Um, um, but then there's like there's a Sondheim 70th I think it that I don't know as well but the Sondheim 80th is like obviously it was like a hugely important music documentary to me and is like um, just has so many like it has like a bunch of discrete sections where it's like exciting like people the current production of West Side Story does America and then there's like a bunch of like recreations of like original casts come out and like Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters sing go on move on again together and um, <laughs> uh, uh John McMartin sings The Road You Didn't Take from Follies and it's just gorgeous and Jim Walton from uh, Merrily We Roll Along sings a song that they wrote after the original flop production that added to the show that he's he never got to sing but he sings it like for the first time and and then it culminates in the 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 ladies in red sequence where all like the great Sondheim divas all come out all of them wearing like a striking red outfit and they each do like one knockout number after another uh, so that's that's something that is uh, very important to me I, I'm trying to rack my brain. I don't think I've really watched that many, though. I think, like JJ mentioned earlier, I am. I have thought in the past of like I am a bit of a connoisseur, of just like going on YouTube and like looking up live performances that way, or like looking at like whatever, just like random like either BBC or like th- those sorts of performances that yeah. they put in those places <laughs> and I, I guess I, I was trying to wreck my brain for a favorite one and I was trying just gonna say like I think there's a little bit of like a thing that people shout out but the Mac Miller Tiny Desk concert is just like an incredibly yeah. good piece of just like work and it's just incredible to watch the the Rick Ross one that happened during quarantine is also really good um, of ones like that um what is it? The Triple J? They do the Like a Virgin. Is that the right uh, people? I'm not sure. But they do like the covers. 
and there's one of Flume doing my boo with Vince Staples that is so sick. Um, the uh, I said violin concerto earlier. I meant cello suite. I did want to get that <laughs> corrected. Um, and uh, Homecoming, the Beyonce. That's a great one. Uh, another Demi storefront Hitchcock is really good. The Robin Hitchcock one. Um, and Homecoming pulls a lot of the same tricks contemporary do- color does, right? Those match cuts between yeah. different performances. With, yeah, with the rehearsals and everything. Amazing. Can I tell you about a weird one that people I feel like don't please, know about? Please. So I once presented at a conference on – the conference was not about what I'm going to say, but my paper was about 3D concert films. There was oh. like this run of 3D concert films starting with like U2 3D, including right. – yeah. Uh, the the Bieber, Hannah Montana, Best Jonas of Both Brothers. Worlds concerts in Disney Digital 3D, right. Katy Glee, Perry, Glee the Concert, in Glee the concert yeah, Glee. One Direction, Kenny Chesney had a 3D one. The one wow. that people hated was Fish 3D because it cuts way too quickly. So it like nauseated a lot of the people who watched That's it. very funny. Um, <laughs> All the Fish fans are like, yeah. like whoa, man. Yeah. I'm like, tripping my meat. too much. Usually we're chilling. We're not cutting quite so quickly. <laughs> um, and it's cutting too, like on the Z axis in a way that you have to slow down with 3D film. Otherwise it introduces, again, nausea to the audience. That's um, so crazy. <laughs> and I found that this these movies, so <laughs> I think these movies were really important for the like conversion to digital because yeah. 3D was the reason why so many theaters converted to digital because that's how 3D was done. And yeah. I mean, digital projection had been around a while at that point and most theaters were still showing on film. But one of the movies that comes at the end of the cycle is a 2013 film um, directed by Nimrod Antal who later directed... God, what's the other movie he directed? Um, well, before that, he directed predators uh the adrian brody topher grace film yeah um i guess he hasn't done anything really since then i'm sorry to nimrod antel he did do armored that mad dylan movie but anyways he directs a metallica film called metallica through the never that is both like a concert film but also tells the story of young roadie trip who goes on surreal kind of apocalyptic misadventures. And Trip is, of course, played by Dane DeHaan. Wow. <laughs> but there was, and it I cost, it cost $32 million and made wow. like eight at the box office. This is but... like real Apple trailers core. Yes. Where I would see this <laughs> all the time and be like, I don't care about Metallica. I'm not going to watch this trailer. But an incredible document, much like, I mean, Fish 3D is also an incredible document, but Metallica through the never. Yeah. Uh, Monterey if, Pop if, like, is Rep good House too. Is... Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. If Rep Houses ever start doing like 3D screenings, like they just did the one for Jackass, they should do the Fish one is like, you're going to get sick, but right. if you want to experience yeah. this, I'm going to put it like... <laughs> yeah. My local Cinematheque, the UW Cinematheque, incredible work. Shout out Jim Healy. Shout out Mike King. If you listen to this, they won't. But they <laughs> recently, like I guess like six or seven years ago, around when I started, when I moved here, they raised the funds to get 3D projection in Madison. They just showed Dynasty 3D, a 1977 Hong oh. Kong 3D film. Uh, here so 
I don't know, maybe when I'm out of the program yeah. and uh, see where this podcast right here takes me in terms of fame, uh-huh. maybe I can program Fish 3D at the <laughs> <Yeah>. UW Cinematheque <laughs> yeah. and uh, uh, yeah, leave the very old people who go to that theater mainly extremely sick and ill. Interesting who thinks who yeah. is doing favors for who here. Before just quickly on that on the Beyonce doctor and like using YouTube just to watch concert footage, the uh, the mix between Hold Up and Countdown is like still I would like watch that clip on YouTube all the time and then when they put the doc out and it's in there I was like this is so sick. Yeah, yeah. and I do like Shut Up and Play the Hits like the full version. Like you can watch oh. the three hour concert. Yeah, and it's it is very good. I watched that. I mean, if it hasn't been clear already, I'm an insufferable person who was raised on Pitchfork. I watched that live in my dorm room with my roommate John Oliver. Not that one, a different one. Wow. And um, both of us very moving experience freshman year of college, crying in our dorm room. Yeah. Like, oh my god, we're never gonna see them again. And I hadn't seen them at that time. I saw them <laughs> later. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> they were older. <laughs> James like Murphy was like, how are you How are you doing? And everyone was like, woo! And he was like, no, I'm asking, how are you doing? Nancy's back hurts. We're, we're doing our best up here. Is everyone okay? <laughs> He's like, huh, we're doing a show, all new songs. And like, okay? <laughs> all right, before we move on to the, like, the final, final segment, I do want to just mention, because I didn't talk much during stop when we were talking about stopping sense because i don't have a lot to say about it but um my dad uh is a big talking heads fan and he saw that tour twice he saw it here in rochester and he saw it in saratoga uh, a couple months apart back when it was uh happening and he uh you know when i was re-watching it today he was very excited he was like standing the whole time like really excited about the movie <laughs> um i got him the amazing for his birthday um uh partially because i had to watch it for this but also just because he should <laughs> um but yeah uh, one, one of the things that we have in this attic where i'm currently recording uh is uh is a uh stop making sense uh, which you can't wow. really wow. see because it's dark. It's a bit dark. I recognize uh, the suit anywhere. I can make out the suit. I got yeah. the suit. It's it's uh it's a big old poster. That's my that was my dad. So I just wanted to uh wow. to, to shout that out. Shout out to that my rules. dad who loves that that um that that band and David Byrne and he saw the American Utopia tour um uh, when it played at one of the wow. the places near here. Um so yeah, he's just a big fan. So had you heard of Contemporary Color? Uh, I don't think so, but I think he's interested in it. He might check it out. Yeah, listen. Tell um, him to listen to our podcast after he watches. Yeah. <laughs> so, What's your dad's so handle? I'm going to DM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is off social media very pointedly. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> he's living a better life than all of us. Yeah, he's on Talking Heads <laughs> during Stop Making Sense tour, and he's not online. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, but I think, are, are we ready to move on to... Uh, Sure. Special presentations, as we're calling our, it. Now. Our newest segment, <laughs> special presentations. Do you want to introduce it again, Amelia, or should we just roll into? Oh it? yeah, I mean, uh, we can just roll into it. Special presentations. Each of us brings something that we saw or heard or Enjoyed, felt recently. Yeah. I guess I don't know what other senses you could experience something that you want to bring to the table. I guess yeah. like if you ate a good piece of food, I guess. If you we can do that. I think I've. Pl- I mean, I've plugged wine before. Yeah, You've plugged all sorts um, of things. We don't need to get into that. Yeah, <laughs> any sort of thing you're enjoying, you can yeah. shout out here. I think it, we should start with our guest, JJ. Is there anything you've watched or seen or felt recently that you want to bring to the table? I'm gonna plug two things. Um, one, because uh, you brought up food, and I 
I've been attempting in my burgeoning influencer status, not true, but I have, I really want to get a promo code from these guys, the Hoplark, uh, Hop Tea and Hop Water Company. Um, I will. So this up, when is this episode coming out? This Friday. Friday. Uh, This Friday. Friday, This Friday. So barring any unforeseen circumstances, when this comes out on Friday, I will have been alcohol free for two years. Hey, wow! Congratulations. I am Congrats. I am alcohol free and vegan, living in Wisconsin. <laughs> it is wow. very it's a it's a test. But uh, this company Hoplark, they were called Hop Tea for a long time, and then now they branched out into water. They make these like tea or water sparkling water drinks that are brewed like beer, have zero alcohol in them. It's not like removed mm-hmm. like non alcoholic beer or anything like that. The one I'm drinking right now is there from their Explorer series. It's an experimental hop called Nectarone from uh, New Zealand. So shout out to the New Zealand Plant and Food Research Company. It's very tropical and tastes like pineapple. And um, Hop Lark, if you are listening to this, I am a micro micro celebrity from a film podcast and would love to get, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100% off some of your products yeah. at sure, some point. Yeah. Just ordered yeah. the vanilla one earlier. So Wow. <laughs> I've never really experienced, experimented with hop water. I've seen it a few times. What I love is a, uh, I think it's Hmm brand kombucha. Mm, has a mm-hmm. hop grapefruit flavor that is mm. money. All right. I'll have to yeah. do it. I love Athletic Brewing Company too. If they want to give me something as well, I will. Any non-alcoholic stuff you want me to pedal, I'm here. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to pedal the same thing I've been kind of promoting on Twitter forever. Um, I'm not officially employed, but I might as well be by the band Big Thief, who just put out their new gigantic 20-song double album, Dragon New Warm Mountain. I believe in you, which is the most moving experience I've had. Uh, in the last couple of years, I guess, since the release of Waxahachie's St. Cloud. Um, Big Thief is a folk band, ostensibly, although on this new new album, they are like seven or eight different bands. They go from their classic kind of uh, ethereal folk sound to like hard rocking feedback band to like Radiohead to Portishead to down home country twangin jamboree kind of style stuff uh and just i think they are some of the i don't know much like you amelia you don't know what it would be like talking to um david byrne i think adrian lenker would not enjoy anything about my extremely online presence and would be like you gotta chill out and just like cover yourself in dirt and like why have you showered today can you wait like another week but like I love those hippies so much and their music is incredible and uh, a tantalizing tease perhaps. I saw them at the Pitchfork Music Festival last year and the the version of the title track on the album is this very icy, literally icy. One of the credited instruments is icicles on that wow. track. It's this very magical kind of quiet, uh, like, yeah, cavernous kind of feeling. When they played it, it was like, <laughs> like... I don't know who it sounded like it was from alt rock radio, like contemporary, like it was like Imagine Dragons, if Imagine Dragons were the greatest band in the world. So apparently That's the funny. Japanese version of the album will have that attached as a bonus track. Wow. Uh, but I am, or maybe it's another take because who knows? They're insane. But I love Big Thief and uh, 
Big Thief, if you want to give me a promo code, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% off tickets, I'm here. We'll yeah. put both those specific asks <laughs> yeah. that you can just send right to them. Yeah. So you'll just have, they won't have to wade through all the discussion. They'll just hear the, the ask for the promo codes. So. I'm going to send it to them and they're going to be, Adrian Lenker is going to be like directly emailing you guys and appearing sure. on the podcast instead of uh-huh. talking to me. They'll get a real look at our download numbers and be like, oh, I can't pass this opportunity. Yeah, we'll be like, not online. It looks like these people don't know anyone. <laughs> um, send her the Annette episode. Yeah, yeah. That's true. That's the that's the one to send, certainly. It's sort of a conceptual sound project if you really think about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything they want to shout out and special presentations off the top of their head? I've got something if no one else does. Um, I do want to mention... I don't, we didn't discuss this aspect of it, but I guess I'm going to be, uh, I'm, uh, or as this is released, I'm on Heavy Metal this week. Um, sure. The, the, our friend Ethan Brundine's uh, Scooby-Doo-based podcast talking about uh, Sandy Duncan's second Scooby-Doo <laughs> episode. Uh, I believe on this coming Monday, we're maybe going to be doing a Twitter Spaces event where we watch two Sandy Duncan movies on Disney Plus and live comment them. <laughs> wow. Uh, so uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, we're doing more than uh, us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, also, just to mention, uh, I mentioned this a few weeks ago before it premiered, but The Gilded Age has uh, got two episodes left. Uh, I just want to mention a specific aspect of it, which is Nathan Lane's performance as a southern dandy named Ward McAllister, who is uh, Carrie Coon's possible entree into the refined world of old money, is the most important performance that's been given in the last 10 years. He is has a big ol' stash and goatee and is a southern dandy as i said it's and is worried about his he his last lot the last episode ended with him d- delivering a por- a portentous line about like oh we're like going into the future but is it gonna be a good future or a bad future? like that sort of thing is like the thing he'll say and he'll be like oh i'm so delighted like when people are like catty to each other at dinner and there's drama and stuff uh it's just tremendous and he's doing great work great yeah i feel like if andy was ever on some game show i feel like the one fact he would ever he would have to give to explain <laughs> it himself would be nathan lane super fan and you would just get 90 percent of 90 percent of his personality in just yeah. one, uh, one sentence listen oh it's I all coming saw, together i just saw nathan lane in joe versus the volcano <laughs> bold performance there very yeah real, real lot going on in that movie certainly um, i love that movie Sure. Yeah, uh, I'll go. I've, I just watched. I've been watching a lot of stuff. I watched. Uh, I did a split double feature, um, where I watched Dragon Inn and Goodbye Dragon Inn for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, Goodbye Dragon Inn is just like it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Uh, I feel like a movie. If anyone who hasn't seen it, it's the Simon Leong film about a theater closing. Uh, where they're doing their last showing of King Who's Dragon Inn, and uh, it is so funny. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I was, I we've briefly talked about Sai in the podcast before when we did our 2009 Can uh, Jury episode, where we talked a little bit about face or visage, um, and we like briefly mentioned it, and like there's the bit of slapstick in that one where the sink breaks and, uh, you know, he, uh, he can't really, 
stop the sink and it's just like this very long bit of a sink pouring out water um and it's pretty it's, it's very funny there um goodbye dragon inn has like so many bits uh the one that i love <laughs> the most is where the woman is eating nuts behind this guy and she's just eating nuts so loudly uh and he gets up to leave and the entire ground <laughs> is just covered with nutshells and it is like truly like millions of nutshells that he's just stepping on and it is such i i just wasn't expecting to, it to be that funny um mm-hmm. and then at the end it is like this moment of a sort of beau travail like crescendo with this musical drop uh and it's like one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen the way that ended and it's like a movie that like feels so alive uh and like has such like a heartbeat to it i it's just a a truly like magical thing and i like have only seen a few sides now i've only seen those two that i mentioned in uh vive l'amour um but i just need to watch more because it's been like nothing but bangers basically probably the greatest public restroom scene in the history of cinema so funny (laughs) so funny we're, i mean just like the smoking it's, and then the, it's so good uh, every, yeah everyone should watch this and, and then dragon in is also just sick as hell and has mm-hmm. the, the craziest score i've ever heard where these people just beat up this virgin with asthma um but yeah emilio um <laughs> yeah i've been trying to think about what i want to plug i've been going old movies mode i guess i've been watching some old movies uh I really, I really loved Ernst Lubitsch's uh, "To Be or Not to Be." That's a mm-hmm. an amazing movie. It's just funny. Jack Benny doesn't miss. Just he doesn't <laughs> miss a bar. He just is so Mm-mm. funny in every single thing he says, and it's like a good movie. It's like tense and tight and funny and manages to be all of those things without like sort of underselling the darkness of its source material it's just a great movie and it's like obviously you can see where a movie like inglorious bastard takes a lot of its influences from it and yeah that movie's great you should all watch it it's the best it's so good that reminds me actually can i plug one more thing please go ahead because my boss griffin newman once went on comedy bang bang and didn't plug the podcast that i work for so not that I mean, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people yep. listening to this know of it, but I do work for the podcast Blink Check with Griffin and David. You should check it out. We're in the midst of March Madness. Ernst Lubitsch, who directed To Be or Not To Be, should have won. But, of course, we listen to the masses and let them take us where they may, <laughs> unless they purchase bots. And um, I work there as a researcher. We're starting our Sam Raimi series. It's been a lot of fun those movies sound like a nightmare to have made but they are nothing but a joy (laughs) to watch and uh yeah it's a a lot of fun and listen to it (laughs) it's good yeah absolutely yeah well this is perfect actually because now we're just gonna quickly do yeah social media plugs and stuff so yeah uh personal twitter yeah, you want to mention? Yeah, um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Follow me. I'm at jj.biz. One of the great accounts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, God. Um, uh, follow the podcast at Can I Kick It uh, on Twitter and CIKIPod on Letterbox and Instagram. And if you have any questions, you can email us at canikickitpod at gmail.com. And if you would like to donate any money to us, 
you can do so at ko-fi.com slash canisi and we should be soon announcing who won our drawing yeah. of getting after, a movie to pick for we us. We should talk about that after we're done recording. Sure. <laughs> um, and uh, if you want to follow any of us on social media, I'm Clatchley on everything. C-L-A-T-C-H-L-E-Y. At Andy T. Germ. A-N-D-Y-T-G-E-R-N. I laugh al- I'm laugh alone on Twitter. You can find <laughs> my other stuff from there. <laughs> Squatting right. on social well, media look- names is a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta have that like good, you know, cross pollination or whatever. We have the same one everywhere. Uh, but yes, with that, this is the end of the episode. We're releasing our audience. Bye. 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 Bye.